0: You are listening to East of Eden, a series of sermons presented at Hocas and Baptist Church in the summer of 2008. Today's message is from Genesis chapter 4. And now, Pastor John Boulet. Before I uh, offer the message, I want to uh, break a class uh, what I fear might be a classically conditioned response, which is we're pretty used to coming to worship service. And we sing, 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 and then we give an offering, and then we hear a message, and then we leave. Uh, but today, we're, after the message, we're going to sing, sing a little more. And I just want to tell you now, because I've been there, and I know how it is, unless you know, at the end of the message, where the pastor starts to mold things down, your body's like ready to get up. So I just want to say today that uh, I want to break the chain, and I want to I, I do this as a way to, to preface our, our attitudes of worship so that we can uh, enjoy the worship. We're doing this because we're talking about the heart of worship this morning, and it just didn't seem right to talk, talk, talk about the heart of worship and then say, see you later. And it seemed appropriate to say, let's talk about it, and then let's stay a little longer and and think and reflect about it, because I know that worship is much bigger than what happens in this room, but this is kind of the pinnacle of our week, and uh, we want to be thoughtful of that. All right, got that out of the way. With that said, I want to talk to you about movies. I am a a child of a movie-watching family. All growing up, uh, all the way through my high school years, we uh, two or three times a week, uh, didn't matter whether it was summer or school, our family would sit down, the five of us, and we would watch a show. And there's a term in our house that's known as the quote-unquote the four-star black and white. And uh, that's because there used to be a thing called TV Guide. Do they even sell TV Guide anymore? They do? Okay. And TV Guide used to rate movies back in the day when you actually wanted to know, you know what, was, what they were rated. And it would be two, three, or four. And our family's American movie classic family. So every week, twice or three times or maybe more, we would sit down and watch a black and white film on American movie classics that TV Guide thought had four stars. And that, that's how I grew up. We watched our four-star black and whites. And the thing about it was, it was before the days of Devo, and it was before the days of were DVDs, and, and Blockbuster was just really kind of coming online, and so the notion was at 9 o'clock this show started, and if you weren't there for it, you missed it, right? Nowadays we're used to picking our time, but back then there was no pausing, there was none of that, and we had one person in our family. She was my mother. <laughs> uh, I, I'm safe, she's in prayer today. But I had one, we had one person in the family, my mom, who right at 8.59 and 59 would remember that there was something in the oven or something on the stove or something in the dishwasher or her sister had called her earlier or there was something that needed folding. All the things that, you know, I take for granted because it, like, keeps my life working, right? But she would always remember to do them at 8.59 and 59 and the family would always groan, Oh! Because you know what's going to happen, right? Most of you have been familiar to something like this, is they leave and they say, oh, I'll be right back, I'll be right back, I'll be right back. Well, yeah, right, whatever. Right, 15 minutes goes by and she finally comes back, and what's the question? So what happened, right? And you and I both know that all the really important stuff happens in the first 15 minutes of the movie. The characters are introduced, the setting is set, the problem is, you know, there's now the problem is built, and so, my mom, as she would sit down and say, Well, what's happening? would usually be met with, right? And none of us would want to tell her because it was, Ugh, you know. And then a commercial break would come and we'd kind of fill her in on it. But there was this feeling like she had kind of jumped in in the middle and was trying to catch up. Well, that's us today. I'm going to ask you to imagine that you're my mom today. Because we're starting a series on Genesis, but we're not starting in Genesis 1, we're starting in Genesis 4. And so there's a sense in which I'm bringing you into this movie, right? This greatest movie ever made, it starts in Genesis 1 and ends way in Revelation, I'm bringing you into the story right as the stage is being set and the problem is really starting to fan up. And so as I'm doing that, we need to be mindful that we're not coming in at the very beginning we're coming in as the problem is setting in and that's really the section of scripture we'll be covering for the next 5 weeks is the sermon series is going to go from Genesis 4 to Genesis 11 and that is a dark time of scripture you could search the annals for poetry biblical poetry and you'll find stuff on Jesus and on Romans and on this and on that you'll never find anything about Cain and Abel right you're not going to find a host of praise and worship songs on babel Right? It's one bad story after another, after another, after another. Right? Adam and Eve fall at the end of three. Their kids are even worse. Their children's children, in some ways, are way worse than that. God finally has to wipe the slate clean, start over with Noah, and his kids are worse, and their kids are worse after that, and he finally has to confuse everybody and scatter the people of the world. And so by the end of Genesis 11, you've come to the conclusion that whatever the problem is, it's us right? You kind of go through each time going, maybe it's this. No, maybe it's that. And by the time you're at the end of Genesis 11, the only thing we can conclude is, is that our problem is us. It's human nature. And that is this series. So it's kind of out of balance in a way. I'd like to tell you that I'm going to alternate, you know, sad story with happy story. I don't have any happy stories. What's nice is is that you and I know the whole story and so Christ is going to creep in whether we like it or not. right? Because every time we see a sad story we know that there's another side to it. And so I pray that the Spirit will temper these narratives. But the narratives are of a difficult time in Scripture. They're of a time of losing and not gaining. They're a time of casting away and banishing and not calling. It's a time of death. It's not life. And it's a time of drifting. That's Genesis 4 to 11. I called it East of Eden because in these individual narratives, there's three or four stories that make up this, this series. Um, in each of them, there is a subtle but pre- present movement of mankind farther eastward. And it, it, it really ministered to me as I tried to understand what's going on here. But there's this idea that, is that when Adam and Eve fall and they're asked to leave the garden, they settle east of the garden. And when Cain kills his brother Abel and he's expelled from the family, he moves to the land east of Eden. And then God shakes everything up with the flood, right? And there's just huge chaos and disorder. But when finally they grow roots again, when mankind gets their attitude going again and they realize they think they're all that and they decide we're going to go build a great monument to ourselves to express to, to the universe of our great merit, right? Where do they go? They go east to a land known as Babel. And so this whole series is a series of mankind that is constantly and consciously moving steadily in the same direction, which is always away from paradise. And that is our sermon series, but we're going to talk about it for five weeks. So, so if you'll pray with me, um, we'll pray and then we'll get started. Lord, we lift up your word. We, we pray that your spirit would speak truth to our hearts as, as we meditate on it, Lord, I, I pray that you would... Bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts, so that this may be a pleasing act of worship for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to give you a quick recap of Genesis 1 to 3. So while you were doing the dishes, uh, God made the universe and everything in it. So there's the quick, quick and dirty. I don't know how else to say it. God made it all. He made it really, really good. In fact, he made it perfect. And on the very top, the cherry on the top of this entire creation were two little things called Adam and Eve, right? And they are the best of the best of the best, right? So all of creation is kind of a crescendo to the creation of man. And man is the very pinnacle of it. And God says, now this is very good. So good, in fact, I'm going to rest. Because there's nothing to be done. And then Adam and Eve... Begin right, and God establishes for them this idea of worship. He says, I'm going to put two trees in the garden, and the way that you will show me, Adam and Eve, the way you will show me worship is through obedience. All I ask is that you forever keep in mind the order of creation that I am creator of everything, and that you are beneath me, and everything else is beneath you. And that's how worship was established in the garden, but through temptation and through thoughts. Right? Adam and Eve begin to covet the position of the Lord. They begin, they begin to covet the knowledge of good and evil. They begin to wonder, what is it that God has that we don't have, and why don't we have it, and how can I get it? Right? That's the sales pitch that Satan makes. I can give you what you don't have because you ought to have it. And so through that temptation, they fall. And through the fall, there's a curse, right? God says, because of this, there will be death. In fact, he bars the tree of life from them. He says, never again will you eat from the tree of life. You will die And then he frustrates relationships. God says, because you have frustrated your relationship with me, God frustrates man's relationship with the ground. He says, you're going to have to work hard. He frustrates man's relationship with his wife. He says, there's going to be tension in the relationship. And we're going to find a day that God continues to frustrate relationships between one brother and another. As we pick up in Genesis 4. So that's what's going on while you were doing the dishes. I'll read Genesis 3, verses 21 to the end of the chapter, kind of to give us some momentum to take us uh, into 4, and then we'll get going. So if you're open your Bibles to Genesis 4, I'll pick up in 3, verse 21, and, and you can listen or follow along. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. That's like the saddest ending in Scripture almost. It just doesn't get worse. And then there's this. I'll read four verses one and two. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, what I find interesting about that is, if you're like me, and you're going to sit down and read scripture, you may read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, but you generally stop at 3. 3 is a good stopping point, right? You kind of got to the end of the story. And then you come back later, and you pick up in 4. But the reality is, is uh, the story doesn't, the way the writer wrote it, if you look at the Hebrew literature. The story actually starts in chapter 2, but it doesn't end until chapter 4. The story of Cain and Abel is as much part of this broader story as the fall of Adam and Eve. And it's, it is bizarre when you put them together how optimistic chapter 4, verse 1 feels. Right? Because we just finished chapter 3. And chapter 3 is like, can anything get worse? Mankind falls. They're expelled from the garden. Their relationships are frustrated. There's curses. There's curses. They're barred from the tree of life, and there's going to be death. And then chapter 4 says, and Eve became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and she goes, and this, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a son. There's this optimism that surprises me. And it's this notion, I wonder, right? because one of the curses to to the serpent was, right, the seed of the serpent would be defeated by the seed of the woman, is what God says in chapter 3. And I wonder in my mind, if in Eve, when Cain is born, if she thinks, this is the man, right? With the help of the Lord, I've brought forth this man that will defeat the serpent. I wonder if that's going on in her mind. But either way, there's this optimism that's coming out that I don't expect. In fact, my vision, and here's where I think I have it wrong. My vision of the fall, so there's the picture up there. This is kind of my vision of the fall, right? At the end of chapter 3, is Adam and Eve They're walking out of the garden. They're not stone cherubim, so they would be like alive. But uh, it's all I got. Cherubim were busy this week. So Adam and Eve are walking out of the garden, but in my mind unconsciously, and I didn't realize it until I was meditating on this sermon series, I have almost imagined way in the background God sitting there watching them leave. Like in the sense of to leave the garden is to leave the presence of God. And that is a wholly unbiblical and Eve knows it. You see what she says? She says, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And as this chapter will go on, you will come to realize that they have been banished from the garden, but they have not been abandoned by the Lord. The Lord is, is ever involved in their lives as he was when they were in the garden. The relationship was frustrated, but God is involved. It's going to happen. It happens now in verse 4, verse 1. It's going to happen time and time again where God's going to the, come to this people and speak and act. And there's this notion. There's this notion of God leaving paradise to come be with his people that sounds amazingly like Christ, doesn't it? That God would open up the doors of paradise and say, I need to leave paradise because my people are out there and I want to bring them back here. And so we find that. We find that in verses like this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? While we were outside, Christ came out and died. Or what about this? For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Or this. And he named him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's this idea that we may be banished from the garden, but we are not abandoned by God. And I feel that's the optimism that Eve feels. That even though she's outside, she is not fully abandoned and that God is with her. And I wonder if there's people here today, or people you know, or maybe it's yourself, who you feel like the sin that you have done or the life that you have led is so bad or so unspeakable or there's some great thing that you've done that in your mind you go, for all these other people in here, these good people, right? you've got to remember they have all the problems you have, but for all these other people who look good on Sunday, yeah, God's with them, but there's no way God could be with me because of what I've done. And I'm telling you that is a holy, unbiblical thought. That the God we worship is near. When we studied Hebrews, there was this admonition from the writer of Hebrews. He said, while it is still today, seek to enter the rest of Christ. Because he's here. He's outside the garden. And he's fellowshipping with us. And I would encourage you this day that if you feel like your sin has surpassed God's reach, you're wrong. Well, that's just verse 1 and 2, so let's keep going. Um, Next, I'll read uh, verses 2 through 5. I'll start in 2b. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought the fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Not only is God involved with his people, right? Not only has he come out of the garden, he's still involved, but there's this interesting thing that shows up right off the bat, and that's worship, which I find very exciting for me. Because for me, this idea of God asking them, bring me offerings, bring me sacrifices, very early on, has solved for me a personal question of, of what, what happens in all this Moses law that happens so much later. Because kind of growing up, what I, I always struggle with um, If the pictures, right, when God gives all these laws to Moses about sacrifices and offerings, right, and we just finished preaching Hebrews where we said these things are not the substance, they're the shadow. They paint a picture towards Christ. And I would ask myself, if they paint a picture towards Christ, the day of atonement and sin offerings and these kinds of offerings, if they point us toward Christ, why does God wait till Moses? Why does he wait till Moses to institute these things? And we see from Genesis 4 that he doesn't. One generation out of the garden, and God is establishing shadows of his substance. He says, I want you to understand what I am like, so bring me offerings. Which is his way of saying, I want you to remember that I am the creator of every good thing that you have. So partner with me. Respond to my goodness in a way that is pleasing to me. That's what God is doing. And He's offering. he offers Cain and Abel the very same things that we see through Moses and the law and all that stuff. And so, for one, it makes the law of Moses seem not so peculiar, because it may have been fermenting for thousands and thousands of years by the time it finally was written down. But it also makes God seem consistent, that if it's useful to those people, it would be useful the moment they're out of the garden. And that's exactly the thing God does. But there's something else that's worth looking at here, and that's that one offering was pleasing and the other wasn't. Right? God was pleased with the offering of Abel, but he was not pleased with the offering of Cain. Now there's one of the problems, and this is going to be a consistent challenge for us in Genesis 4 through 11, is that we're rarely, if ever, given the kind of detail that you and I would want to hear. Right? We want to know exactly what happened on every day of creation. Right? We have these demands. We kind of want to know all these things about the flood. So exactly what did the boat look like and and how do you put this many animals on? And what is the. You know, we, we, we always have a desire to go beyond the details offered in the primeval books of early Genesis. These, these are early stories, and they are always light on detail. And I think one of the reasons they're light on detail is they don't want us to get bogged down in detail. But we generally make two, one of two mistakes, if we're going to make a mistake here, and that is either to say the details aren't important, right? Now, there's really no teaching, there's really no teaching to be drawn from this. We might even go so far, so far as to say it's, ah, it's just legend. Or the other problem that we might make is to put too much weight in the details. And you'll find that the same mistake on the other side of, that we, we can't ever get past the details and realize that God's actually trying to teach us a spiritual lesson. So with that in mind, we'll look at the details, but we'll expect to find something different. And so what can we know? We know, first of all, that each brother brings an offering that is in kind with their job. So Cain is a farmer, he brings produce. Abel is a shepherd, he brings flocks. So they each bring an offering in kind of what their occupation is, but this is what happens. There's a slight difference, and the details tell us, there's a slight difference in the offering. It says, and Cain brought some of his produce. Do you see that? Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, verse 3. But listen to Abel. But Abel brought fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. That's a biblical way of saying Cain brought some stuff, but Abel brought the best stuff he had. Right? The firstborn, so his best flock, he kills, right? I mean, it's not like he borrowed a leg from one of his lambs. Right? His prize lamb, he strikes dead. Right? The one that the healthy one, the one where the future of, he's going to breed that one with the other ones and make more healthy ones, right? Or whatever it is when you, I'm not a shepherd, so. I'll, if you have a question, I'll refer you to a decent shepherd. I'll find one out. Right, but that's what he does, right? He, he takes out the prize lamb, and then from that, he cuts out the best part of the lamb, or whatever animal it happens to be, and he brings that to the Lord, which, by the way, is consistent with Mosaic law. The offering laws would say that God gets the fat portions of the, of the sacrifice. So there is this harmony, by the way, with the picture God is painting. But So Abel brings the best of the best, and we don't know much about Cain. All the writer says is, and Cain brought some stuff too. But I think it, it's, the details kind of push us in a direction of what's actually happening here. So now that we know these details... we have to decide how much do we read into these details. If the details are the meaning, then this is the lesson that we draw, which is true, by the way, which is God prefers meat over vegetables. All right? Trust me, uh, that is a teaching for this morning. Uh, I I affirm it. Um, But uh, but there's a spirituality behind this, so we can't simply stop here, stop with God likes meat and not vegetables, right? And we know that in reality, God doesn't eat either of them, right? God doesn't need food. We didn't just pass the plates and then our ushers take it back and they didn't mail it to the Lord. Right? He's not waiting with bated breath to see how much you're going to give this Sunday. He's probably fairly uninterested with how much you're going to give. He's probably pretty interested in why you're giving. Right? God doesn't need our sacrifices. The psalmist writes, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What does God need? What do I have? What is man that he is mindful of us? Right? What do we have to offer? And so when we look at offerings, when we talk about bringing our tithes and offerings in the house of the Lord, we have to start asking that the substance of worship is beyond the gift itself. Right? So when we pass the plate here in the church, or when we read stories like this, we have to go, if there's any meaning at all to be found, and if there's any meaning at all to be found in our life in giving of offerings, it must be more significant than some percentage of your income comes to the church every month. That's giving. That's not worshiping. And I think that's where we find the truth. I think the truth is, in fact, that God recognizes that Abel gave of his best and that Cain just gave. And that forces us to ask a few questions. It makes me wonder if Abel seems to have this sense that God is not in the garden but is among him. There's this idea that we give a lot of times in accordance with how close we think the Lord is. You know, if if you are just tithing just in case there's a God, it's going to look distinctly different than if you knew that tomorrow Christ was coming again. Because there's this feeling of the way the Lord is involved in our lives evokes the way that we respond to him. And it seems with Abel that Abel felt the presence of the Lord. There's a righteousness about Abel that seems to respond to God with an attitude of worship that doesn't show up with Cain. And we'll see that here in a second as it develops. Cain does not respond to the Lord in a way that he's dying to to say, thank you for what you've given me. Let me offer back to you a token of what you've given me as a way of acknowledging the fact that you are God and I am not. There's the proverb, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And it seems that Abel has figured that out. But Abel says that God is good and He's given me all these things, and I'm going to respond to the Lord, and thanks for His involvement in my life. But with Cain, we don't find that to be the case. The chapter, the 11th chapter of Hebrews, I'll read you a verse from it. But the 11th chapter of Hebrews, we call the Hall of Faith. It's this long litany of faithful people, right? And God kind of shows. This is what faith really is. And this long litany of 20 or 30 names that go all the way through the Hebrew Hebrew experience starts with one man, and that man is Abel. He says this in the fourth verse. He says, By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. God is saying that Abel's sacrifice or offering was was reckoned as righteous because of who Abel was. That the offering you give, on one Sunday you can give one thing, on the next Sunday you could give the exact same thing and it could mean two totally different things. One season of your life you could give out of an act of pure obedience, which is pretty good, right? So starting place. Another Sunday you could give as an act of just deep gratitude, for the way the Lord has just entered into your life and the lives of those around you, that's a little better. And so the way that we worship, with the offerings we give, is that is what makes our offerings pleasing or not pleasing to the Lord. But this is how Cain reacts. I'm going to start in the fifth verse. Cain says this, But Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And one thing I'm encouraged by is there are a whole bunch of reasons that we might ask, why does God prefer Abel over Cain? Because at the end of the day, we're inferring about the details. But there can, the accusation cannot be that God simply likes Abel and he doesn't care about Cain. Because the second Cain messes up, what does the Lord do? The Lord comes to his side. And so, By the way, the language is exactly identical to the language in Genesis 3, where we all think that God is walking among the people. Right? When it says, in the cool of the day, the Lord was walking in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, and you and I imagine in our mind that there's some kind of theophic figure in the garden, the language is identical here. And so it is not a stretch to imagine that God is actually speaking to Cain. It's, you're making no leap of judgment there. The, the, the literature is pushing us in that direction. And so there's this idea that if God didn't care for Cain, he would have not liked his offering, but he wouldn't have done a thing about it. But Cain messes up with his offering, and God comes straight to his side and says, why would you do this? You can please me, Cain. There's a way to do what is good. It's not far from you. But don't let your anger capture you. It's says sin is lurking at your door. And it wants to have you, but you must master it. It's like the New Testament writer. is Satan prowls around like a lion looking for who he might devour. It's the same essence. And the Lord's encouragement, and my encouragement to you today, is that when, when you find yourself in a place where you have done wrong, When you find yourself convicted, where the Lord says, I am not pleased with you, his response is not, so I don't care about you. The Lord can be displeased with us and still love us. And this is where we find, he says, Cain, you can do what is right, but Cain doesn't. And here's why, or here's why I think why. We're reaching for the details. But I think this is consistent with scripture. The first thing I think that might be going on in Cain's mind is, there's a sense of entitlement. I think this because I feel this way. I give, so God gives. Right? I tithe, therefore, God acts. I think many of the church feel that way. We feel like God had better take care of me. I tithe. I go every Sunday. I sing songs on pitch. right? I deserve the blessings of the Lord. So I think that's the first mistake Cain is, is making, because God owes us nothing. The earth is the Lord and everything in it to include ourselves. And so I think that's probably going on in Cain's mind is I gave him an offering. How can he not accept my offering? Or maybe it's this. How dare he prefer my brother's sacrifice over mine? I wonder if Cain's thinking, you know, before my brother started giving, God never had a problem with my sacrifice. My sacrifice looks bad only because Abel's is so fancy. I wonder if that's going on because I see that in the church too. I see us coveting the relationships and the gifts that other people have as though they affect our standing with the Lord. But the Lord writes, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's possessions. And the whole thought of worship is God is completely and wholly unconcerned with what the person next to you is doing or can do or how he gives. The Lord is only interested in what is the motive behind your giving? Which is, which is actually a very fine sense of peace. Because you don't have to give as much as the person next to you. Right? You don't have to give very much at all as long as your attitude and your heart seek to worship. And so we are in the fortunate place of being able to seek peace with God based on whatever we have been given. Which is a marvelous opportunity. Or maybe this is the reason Cain was angry. Maybe Cain, this entire time, has not really internalized the fact that God is there. I wonder if Cain felt like I did, that when his parents left the garden, God stayed in the garden. And so his offering was kind of like, it's just what we do, right? Sunday comes around, it's time to give the offering. I cut up a few apples, that's my offering. And God shows them and goes, don't you realize that what you're doing is spiritually significant? And I'm not pleased with what you've done. And I wonder if that's what's going on in Cain's life. And I actually think it's probably a series of all three. I probably think the heart of what's going on is that Cain's sacrifice and his offering have never been worship ever. And there was no amount that Cain could have brought. He could have brought the first fruits, the best of his first fruits. He could have brought his entire harvest in my mind And had his heart been the way it is, God would still have been displeased because God doesn't need his stuff. God desires his heart just as he desires ours. The heart of worship isn't songs. And it's not worship service. And it's not this message. And it's not how many times you come to Sunday. And it's not how many times you write a check. The heart of worship is why you do these things. You can do them very poorly as far as everybody else concerned and you can be at peace with God if your heart is right. And so I encourage you this morning, I encourage you to seek to be right with the Lord. And I've lost my scripture, here we go. I encourage you to give from your heart. And that when you give, I understand if it's a habit, but I would encourage you to ask questions like, why do I give what I give? Is it for the right reason?" Do I believe that God receives these things and cares? Do I believe that God is close when I give these things? Or do I believe, am I just paying life insurance just in case there's really a God out there? Because if there is, I can tell you, if that's the reason you're doing it, he is not pleased. So save your money. But I would encourage you that there is a reason we offer to the Lord. We're acknowledging that God is our creator, we're acknowledging that everything we have is a gift from him. And so we respond back to him in submission which is what our offering is. The 12th chapter of Romans reads like this. As soon as I can find it. Paul Paul says it this way. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. He says, This is your spiritual act of worship. That's what we've been called to do. God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our fruits or our flocks. He wants our lives. He wants our attitudes. He wants our hearts. And he's not satisfied with less than that. You can't buy him off. And you can't go unnoticed. He's calling us to worship. I'm going to bow us in prayer. And then our praise team will come up. And we're going to sing some songs. And the purpose is for you to take time to reflect. To reflect on the way you worship. To take time and reflect on your attitude this Sunday or on numerous Sundays or at, look at your attitude regarding some facet of worship. Is there something that you do that has no spiritual significance? And if there is I would encourage, and you can't figure it out, I would encourage you to ask me, why do we do this? I'd be happy to talk about that. But chances are for most of them, you're going to think, when you start thinking of why you worship, you'll see reasons and you'll see reasons why you should worship better and more from who you really are.